Oh, good afternoon, colleagues. This is uh, Dr. Richard McCallum, your Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, bringing you our monthly podcast, albeit the 29th of October. We've just been through a very important month, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So as my and my editorial assistant, Karina, pondered this challenge, we luckily have uh, the very best right here on the editorial board of uh, our journal, the Journal of Investigative Medicine. She's the associate editor for the breast cancer region. Plus, I had the benefit of recruiting her to my faculty and learning learning just how how great an oncologist and breast cancer expert she is. I'm, I'm referring to Zaina Nali, uh, who's currently uh, the director um, at the uh, Maroon Cancer Center at Western Florida uh, Cleveland Clinic. Uh, professor there and chair of the Division of Heme Oncology. She's come quite a, a long way and well-deserved because uh, we can trace uh, Zaina back to her beginnings in Lebanon, uh, where she went to medical school and where she graduated and, and began uh, some residency training. Soon after that, uh, she moved to Georgetown. And um, there she did some more residency training and did a fellowship in Himong. Moved on then to be director of breast oncology at University of Cincinnati. And after that, um, she was on the breast cancer multidisciplinary team at Wayne State, where in 2011, as I sought and looked around as chairman of medicine at Texas Tech El Paso, how to find a great division director for our Hemong division. Uh, indeed, I had the chance to meet uh, Zaina, her um, husband Gus, and their young daughter, now 15, uh, Noir. And um, I quickly realized uh, what a gem uh, I was uh, speaking to and what a great opportunity it was for Texas Tech. And uh, Zaina came here as our chief of the division in 2011 immediately got what's called a CPRIT grant, which is a very difficultly highly competed for grant in Texas to help fund her research. She's also um, involved with um, uh, Southwest Oncology. She has uh, connections there, SWOG, and um, has continued to be funded, of course, in, in institutionally at Cleveland Clinic. She has a degree of seed funding as well. Very productive, very active in publication and I could think of no one better to discuss uh, the topic for today, really. What, what is new in our breast cancer world? What can we talk to our patients about? Uh, what can you be updated on as a physician who was supposed to be on top of your game and, and know enough about all these areas? Uh, breast cancer, as Zaina will tell us, is obviously a, a great and serious concern and challenge increasing every day. So with that, Background, Zaina, welcome, and glad Thank to see you, you again. Thank you, Dr. McCallum, for this uh, very kind introduction. We're very happy to be here. Yeah, we didn't say one of um, Zaina's other, or I wouldn't say uh, ways of helping El Paso was a husband open a, a Mediterranean food uh, restaurant here, which was frequently appreciated by many of us and still is. He keeps it going, and uh, that's a little aside. But let's talk about breast cancer, Zaina. You're in the middle of it. 
Cleveland Clinic resonates yeah. everywhere as being one of the great places to go. And you've certainly carried on that heritage and that legacy. So here in El Paso, of course, as you know, well, Hispanic women don't tend to get screened very much and very early. We get late, late diagnoses, breast cancers, often very virulent, very malignant, very difficult to manage. You've been through all that. Mm -hmm. uh, for those um, out there, our, our members and perhaps other listeners from different multi, from different subspecialties, why don't you give us a sort of brief view from your level uh, of what are some of the reasons why screening seems to be less appreciated or less accepted by subgroups? Are there any concerns why it, it should be um, you know, hesitated about doing? And indeed, when should we start? Thank you. So uh, breast cancer is, um, is a feared diagnosis. It's the most common cancer in women uh, in the US and around the world. So we have come a long way in improving survival and outcome for patients with breast cancer because largely uh, due to the early detection and uh, because of screening. So using screening mammograms remain the key uh, modality to find cancer early, early where it is the most curable. Uh, cancer in advanced stages become uh, um, uh, you know, much more difficult to treat and cure. So the emphasis is always on early detection and for women not to postpone or delay their screening mammogram. Now there is a lot of uh, sometimes uh, hesitance about mammography. Uh, some people feel it is a slightly painful procedure, but really pain should not be significant. I mean, this is the, by far the best, the best uh, test we have until today. Um, for women who, uh, who are still having menstrual cycle, we advise them to avoid scheduling the mammogram like right before or during their menstrual cycle. But mammography is still recommended to start at age 40 and yearly thereafter, and uh, of course, into menopause. So uh, we would uh, definitely wanna emphasize the early detection and uh, the screening. Now with the pandemic, we have noticed, uh, not even in, in places that are not uh, majority minority, uh, like here in Florida, we have seen uh, a drop by 50% of patients diagnosed at stage zero or in situ, where it is uh, obviously the most curable uh, because of delay in uh, presentation to uh, uh, and delaying of their screening mammograms and patients are uh, being diagnosed at much later stages because of the delay. So that's really, I think the important uh, message and it remains uh, still valid today that mammograms are very key to uh, finding cancer. Another key uh, point is in, in El Paso, when I always try to emphasize early detection because many of the lumps are diagnosed and are felt by the patient. And many patients delay presentation because they feel the lump is not painful. Well, cancer is in 99%, it's not a painful uh, disease. It, it shows up like a, just a benign or a, like something they feel it's nothing, but it is how this is how they present. and. Uh, the message is for women not to neglect uh, a lump that especially is something that is growing and to come and uh, talk to their physician at the early 
sign of any abnormality in their breast, not to delay evaluation and care because that will provide the best chance for effective treatment. In terms of uh, type of uh, testing, we have, uh, have, we have had advanced technology in uh, uh, accurate diagnosis of uh, breast cancer. And uh, we uh, adopt here the 3D technology at our center. We, in addition to ultrasound and MRIs of the breast, it depends on each case by case, of course, but uh, we have all these uh, technologies available to uh, better and more accurately diagnose uh, breast cancer in its earlier stages. Rosanna, I want to comment on racial disparities. Obviously, you're still in a very Hispanically dominated part of the uh, US. You were here on the border in El Paso, and you know about the other views of uh, African-American and perhaps other racial disparities. Can you give us a, an idea there? Are there any special needs to maybe begin early screening, family histories? What would that make a difference? So yes, uh, there are some uh, uh, cancer disparities based on biology and mostly based on socioeconomic status that will uh, delay access to uh, preventative and screening, uh, uh, you know, uh, care for patients with for cancer and breast cancer in general. So, um, uh, analyzing the data from the National Cancer Database, we, we recently published uh, several articles uh, noting that there is a disparity, obviously, uh, with uh, between African American and and uh, uh, and white in terms of late uh, presentation. Uh, also, African-American women tend to have uh, more triple negative breast cancer, which is the uh, aggressive type of breast cancer, and to be diagnosed at the younger age. S uh, similarly to Hispanic women who are diagnosed typically at a younger age and tend to have more uh, genetic mutations and uh, uh, hereditary mutations and triple negative breast cancer. So definitely uh, women have to be aware of their family history and um, you know to uh, try to take advantage of these uh, early detection methodologies that will save their lives. Thanks, Anna. Getting into the receptor business, obviously I look at a few articles that come in before I send them to you, and um, and you know not that I'm keeping up, but I I see receptors everywhere. So why don't you give us the sort of um, highlights about what we've learned with receptor technology, the good receptors triple receptor, negative, all the stuff you've said. Give us a sort of our walking um, knowledge level of what we should be aware of uh, for our patients. Well, thank you. That's a very important question. And the first thing we, uh, we have to identify uh, after diagnosing a patient with breast cancer is the subtype of that breast cancer. Breast cancer is a heterogeneous disease. It is not one type of cancer. And uh, in, in uh, general, it is divided into three main categories. The, uh, this is based on three main receptors uh, that are on the uh, surface of the breast cancer, tumor, uh, estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2 new, uh, human, uh, the, the HER2 new, which is one of the receptors as well. Human epidermis growth receptor new. So just in short, we call it HER2. So these three receptors have to be identified. We have a, a group of patients who have estrogen receptor positive or progesterone receptor positive called hormone receptor positive. That's one group. Another group is HER2 positive. And the third group is 
triple negative, where all three receptors are negative. Now, the treatment of each of these three groups is completely different uh, for the most part. And because of the advances in treatment and, and with research uh, advances, we treat each patient with more targeted therapy against these receptors. For example, the HER2 positive subgroup is treated with anti-HER2 therapy that is commonly combined with standard traditional chemotherapy. Similarly, for the hormone receptor positive group, a, an essential component, a crucial component of the treatment is anti-hormonal therapy or anti-estrogen therapy. Well, this can be done, of course, along with chemotherapy or after chemotherapy, obviously, uh, with radiation, but that's, we're talking more than systemic therapy, not local therapy. So for systemic therapy, anti-hormonal therapy is essential for, her to, for a hormone receptor positive tumor. Now for triple negative breast cancer, this has been traditionally the most aggressive type because there is no real targeted agent that we can use because there are no receptors to target. So uh, this, this, this subtype of breast cancer is typically treated only with chemotherapy. Until recently, until quite recently, where now we have uh, really come a long way in the treatment of triple negative breast cancer. And it so happens that that group of, of cancer, uh, many of them display um, the uh, a special receptor called uh, PDL1. So we can uh, target that PDL1 with PDL1 inhibitors in, uh, with medications known as immunotherapy. So in other words, we can unlock the immune system that we have in our body, the T cells to fight those cancer by using, by manipulating the immune system using immunotherapy. And that works very well for triple negative breast cancer uh, of all the other types. So now we have better and more personalized treatment for triple negative breast cancer. So that's one, uh, one of the receptors now we test uh, that is aside from the three receptors that are the traditional ones. So PD-L1 inhibitor or checkpoint inhibitor or immunotherapy is, uh, has entered the, uh, the world of breast cancer treatment. Now, in addition to that, many patients do uh, carry the gen genetic mutation known as a BRCA, BRCA mutation. And that, that is uh, also um, a, uh, that's also true for, uh, are positive, hormone positive, and hormone negative. So patients with, uh, with BRCA mutation that we can detect through blood or uh, uh, saliva test, uh, it's the DNA of the patient carries that BRCA mutation through their family uh, hereditary uh, genetic makeup. We have a targeted agent also for patients who carry the BRCA mutation. So these receptors and biomarkers are helping us uh, better target the care of treatment for these patients. We, I have several patients with triple negative breast cancer who happen to be BRCA positive, the tumor is BRCA mutation positive. Those patients do not need chemotherapy anymore, at least initially. So these patients are given that pill, which is a PARP you know, inhibitor that can uh, 
you know, help them for many, many years, even in the advanced stages of the disease. So we've come really a long way in uh, understanding and treating the subtypes and the molecular types of breast cancer compared to the past where we had a one size fits all. So I think that's a very important comment about the, this last one, the triple negative, where you have this extra agent to give because, you know, I don't get out that much, but when I get to a cocktail party or go anywhere, the major message we hear from someone at the cocktail party is my mother, my wife, or my sister or someone, you know, did well for four or five years. And then all of a sudden she woke up with metastases in the brain or a metastasis somewhere, even after we thought, the, the doctor thought, you know, we, we'd beaten this thing. And we see these late recurrences, which are often very late, too late to really intercept or prevent um, or, or cure. Give us a brief snapshot. Who are these sort of late or delayed recurrences, which tend to be very, well, terribly negative? Absolutely. Devastating. After, after someone is cured from, from breast cancer or, not, or thinking they are cured and, and the cancer comes back, that's really a devastating uh, diagnosis, obviously. So as uh, we, we talked uh, earlier, the best chances for achieving a high cure rate, more than 90% of cure rate is when the cancer is found early in stage zero, one, or, or two. Or even three, we have good cure rates. When the patients have metastatic disease, meaning stage, stage four, when the cancer has gone to the organs, it will be difficult to cure and we have to control the tumor for so for many for many years but it will not go away now for the those patients who did not have metastatic disease the chance for cure is high the earlier the stage the better but unfortunately we're still diagnosing patients who are not in stage zero they are coming in with stage one two or three and depending on the receptors depending on the grade depending on the activity of the cancer many patients may um, suffer from recurrence uh, despite uh, the best treatment. But the good news is that this number is small. So the majority are cured, but we still, we can, it's never 100%, we still find these recurrences. So what do we do about these patients who are at high risk for recurrence because their cancer has gone to the lymph node, let's say, or they have a high grade tumor or, or whatnot. So, there is an active ongoing, a uh, lot of research programs have tackled this uh, point of trying to prevent recurrences, not just treating the cancer and treating the, uh, the actual disease, but also what, how can we know who is the, the patient who's gonna have a recurrence and, and who is not. So, and tailor treatment accordingly. So a lot of research is ongoing in this field. But just to briefly, you know, we do have some multi-gene expression profile that we can use and that can guide our therapy early on because the best chance for cure is to give the right treatment upfront, not just to wait for the cancer to recur. So we have better uh, markers now, such as the uh, 21 gene recurrence assay, mama print assay. These are genomic molecular tests that can tell us, oh, this patient needs chemotherapy. Uh, because if you just give anti-hormone therapy alone, I just saw a patient yesterday, it so happens, you know, she, uh, she has an early stage breast cancer, but we, ra we ran the, the multi-gene profile and her score was 49, very, very high. Anything more than 25 is high. 
we were going to give her just hormonal therapy because she had uh, multiple uh, comorbidities. But in this particular case, we knew based on her profile that the risk of recurrence is 35% uh, just by doing that uh, special test. And if she, if she just uh, received hormonal therapy alone. So we definitely incorporated chemotherapy in this particular patient. So we have some tools to uh, identify who are the patients at higher risk for recurrence. More recently, actually, in, uh, uh, if, in the news, there was a really a breaking news of a new medication that the FDA has approved. And this is the first medication approved in 20 years in early stage breast cancer in hormone receptor positive tumor. Because for the longest time, we just had the anti-estrogen therapy. Now we have a new medication uh, known as CDK4-6 inhibitor. It's a, it's a, a biological medicine that has been shown to reduce the recurrence of patients with high-risk breast cancer by 30%. So I was very fortunate to participate in the, in the national study uh, known as Monarch E between 2017 and 2019 that was uh, running the, 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 this randomized trial here in Florida. We had several patients enrolled and we learned obviously how to treat these patients with that medication. And, you know, it's, we are very fortunate that patients who were uh, receiving this medicine, now we know they have a 30% less chance of recurrence. So that medicine is given, it's called amimaciclib. It's given along with the anti-hormonal therapy. So yes, uh, we have made advances, but of course, nothing replaces the close monitoring and close surveillance and following up uh, these patients closely, even after they are cured from cancer. Uh, so the, the care of breast cancer does not stop after finishing chemotherapy and radiation. Patients have to continue uh, follow-up surveillance, survivorship care, along with their uh, cancer team. Thanks, Zana. Now let's get to the current environment. Of course, everything's now being uh, modified or has to be um, addressed in the, in the overall setting of COVID. And certainly vaccines um, are being welcomed and we have the new, um, you know, well, your, your daughter's above that, but I've got a couple of grandkids in the five to uh, 11 range. So they're gonna get benefited next week or so, but vaccines are also worried, uh, are worrisome to patients who are getting mammograms, maybe worrisome because they're on chemotherapy already. Uh, give me some, give us a quick, quick uh, couple of lines on advice for getting vaccinated um, with breast cancer and with chemo and things like that? So uh, the, uh, based on the FDA and the you know, CDC, patients with immuno, uh, who are immunosuppressed, immunocompromised, are eligible for, um, for the vaccine and the booster. So we, uh, that includes patients with cancer diagnosis. So we would recommend that patients receive uh, their vaccine uh, especially if they're immunocompromised, we do recommend that they do get their, their vaccines and their booster. There is no contraindication um, for that, but they have to time their, uh, their, if they are on active treatment, they have to talk to their um, uh, treating physician and uh, time the treatment, not just not during the first two weeks of, uh, of the chemotherapy, but absolutely we recommend that. And if patients are Starting chemotherapy, we'd, we'd recommend they get the vaccine before that if possible. Um, so 
that's for the vaccine. Uh, in terms of screening, also mammogram, uh, we get this question a lot. Some patients notice lymph node swelling and, uh, you know, sometimes they worry that uh, the, the vaccine is causing that, but this is temporary. This, this is not causing cancer. The vaccine is very safe and uh, it should be timed also like maybe before the, uh, so probably do the mammogram before the vaccine, not, not right after because many times there are some lymph node enlargement because their immune system is, uh, is reacting and uh, the lymph nodes can get enlarged because of the vaccine and that can last for many weeks. So keep that in mind or tell mm -hmm. your radiologist or your physician that you just had the vaccine. So there will be no confusion with that. Uh, final question, a bit of an unusual one. There have been some claims about larger breasts post uh, vaccination, I guess um, some comment about the Pfizer boob jaw, maybe it's the Dolly Parton vaccine, but uh, do you have any comments about rumors about this? Is that becoming uh, important in Florida where that sort of activity may be promoted? <laughs> so yes, uh, a lot of that. No, actually it is, uh, this came early on when the, you know, the, the Pfizer was the first vaccine approved and many women were noticing enlargement of their breasts and mostly the lymph nodes and that, that the appearance of enlarged, uh, enlarged boobs. <laughs> but, uh, and there's some fear related to that or that maybe they're having cancer or growth or something. Like I mentioned earlier, it is temporary. It could be a reaction from the lymph nodes because the immune system is working and the lymph nodes contain B cells that these are the, you know, the, uh, the cells in the, in the blood and the lymphatic system. So there is no problem uh, getting the vaccine and this is temporary, it will go away. It is not cancer uh, related. So these are lymph nodes from breast cancer being treated or just getting the vaccine can activate a little lymph node involvement and that make, can make your breast look bigger. Exactly, that's a uh, normal uh, patients who don't have cancer, right. uh, normal uh, you know, women who uh, no, they don't have any cancer related disease or diagnosis. They just get the vaccine and they have the swelling of the breast or the lymph nodes. I and that, uh, that creates some fear, which is uh, not uh, really based on any evidence and it's not cancer related. Well, Zaina, it's just great to have you uh, make October a memorable breast cancer month for us. You've raised the bar here for Thank the you. AFMR and for the Journal of Clinical Investigation. Um, uh, and so, I, I'm very glad to, that we've got together again. We've had a few years here where we haven't been as uh, closely involved as we were when you were here in El Paso. You made a giant difference to Texas Tech, and I know you're continuing to make a giant difference uh, to Cleveland Clinic, Western Florida. Congratulations on your career and continue good luck with your research, your work, and your family. Thank you so much, Dr. McCallum. It's been a pleasure knowing you, working with you, and uh, always great to connect. And uh, have a great weekend and uh, be safe, everybody. Thank you again. So audience, um, you've, uh, you've just heard the update and the best uh, information about breast cancer. I hope you'll uh, pass this podcast on to your colleagues and remember it as well. We look forward to more to come up. I want to thank Karina Espino again, who's on my left hand this time, but she's my right hand as well in keeping this journal up to date and particularly these broadcasts uh, on cue. And uh, we look forward to 
getting um, more of your articles for the Journal of Investigative Medicine. Uh, please submit them. We'll give you a quick turnaround and give you great reviews. So again, we're signing off. All the best um, to our audience. Make sure you submit abstracts to the Western Society and the Southern Society and the Midwest and East in the future. And uh, we'll see you at the meetings. Goodbye for now.